Good afternoon. My name is Sally and I'm a member of Al-Anon. And I want to thank Larry and Mary Lou and the committee for asking me to be here. Our Al-Anon literature reads, uh, we, are, we hope that you will find here what we have been privileged to enjoy. And privileged is the key word to that sentence, because to be asked to do anything in Al-Anon at any level is certainly a privilege. And so I am grateful to be here today in this beautiful, beautiful place. I uh, was raised in the Midwest where we had change of seasons, and uh, my nesting instinct comes out when I see the leaves changing like they do here. It's a beautiful place, and you're fortunate people. But aren't we all to be here today, or anywhere today? Uh, I, uh, I'm just your garden-type Al-Anon. I uh, lived with an alcoholic, a drunk. He was a drunk then. He didn't become an alcoholic till he joined AA. <laughs> And uh, he drank and I reacted. Uh, Keith played a lot of professional football, and he used to have a coach that said it took three Ds to, uh, uh, to succeed in that game. That was desire, determination, and drive. And, you know, that just about sums up our drinking history. Uh, he had the determination, desire to drink. I had the determination he wasn't going to, and it about drove us both crazy. But we're here today, and we are grateful for that. Um, I, uh, I came from a family that didn't drink, so I'm like Leo. I can't blame Keith's alcoholism or my lack of Al-Anon on anybody or anything. I was raised in a family that, uh, well, I won't say they were dysfunctional because that wasn't the word for the families then, but uh, they were, my folks were divorced when I was very, very young, and I lived in Oklahoma. Now, Oklahoma was a dry state, so I never saw anyone drink. That might have been why. But, uh, you know, Al-Anon are statistics, which I don't have, a, I don't put a lot of stock in statistics, but sometimes statistics, try that, statistics say that we, the Al-Anons, go out and find our little alcoholic. Don't you love that phrase, Al-Anons, my alcoholic? It's kind of like my book and my purse. But, um, you know, every pot finds its lid, I guess. Or every nut finds its bolt. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I never saw anyone drink, so I didn't know anything about alcoholism. I thought alcohol, this is what I thought drinking was. I didn't know anything about alcoholism, but this is what I thought drinking was. I thought it took in a in place in a room much bigger than this, and never in the daytime, ha <laughs> always at night, on top of a, maybe a big 18-story building, and there'd be windows all around, and there'd be lights twinkling out there in the night skies, and she would have on a white low-cut satin dress with a feather boa, and he had on a tuxedo, and they drank out of the right-shaped glasses, and they danced and they giggled, and I thought that was drinking. <laughs> but I was to find out, if you're really sincere about your drinking, that it came in brown paper bags between your legs. Because that's the kind of drinking my alcoholic did. And you know, we don't get well overnight, because Keith had been sober <clears throat> maybe a couple of months, and we stopped by a liquor store. At that time, we both still smoked. And he went in, and I was with him, and I watched him buy a Pepsi-Cola, put it in a brown paper bag, and come back out and put it between his legs. So <laughs> habits die hard. And you know that that feeling came up in my gut, that same feeling I used to have when I used to look at him do that, and it was beer. So I'm grateful that I have not forgotten where I came from, because, you know, you might be doomed to relive it. And uh, I never want to go through that again, those feelings that we come into Al-Anon with. 
Alice, your mouth not have been dry, but mine is. Anyway, this family that I came from that didn't drink, they didn't do anything else either. That wasn't, as my grandmother used to say, very tasteful. So you didn't do anything unless it was tasteful. So I guess it wasn't tasteful that you ever told anybody how you felt or you ever showed any affection or you ever touched anyone. Because those were feelings I grew up with that I had. I'm sure that everyone in my family loved each other. I just never heard anyone say it. But I grew up that you didn't demonstrate any kind of emotions like that. So sometimes when I think about what the disease and living with the disease of alcoholism did to me, I have to remember some of the things that it has done for me. One has gotten me to Al-Anon. Of course, I always say I wouldn't need to be here if it wasn't for him anyway. But another thing that it has done for me, it has taught me to tell you how I feel, not just what I think. And it has taught me to show you that I love you and I care for you. And I can do that without any hesitation. And I'm grateful for that. And I learned that in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and meetings of Al-Anon because, you know, we are touching, rubbing up against people. So I'm grateful that I can do that today. This family that didn't do anything and didn't drink, I thought, you know, there's always a skeleton in the closet. And I come from a heritage of full-blood German and full-blood Indian. And I had one great uncle, Uncle Ferris. He was tall and lithe, and he was very, very handsome. And he would wear hand-sewn silk shirts and Stetson hats and boots, and he always had a rich widow on the street. Now, there would have been a clue if I'd have known anything about alcoholism, right? <clears throat> but Uncle Ferris would go away, and he'd be gone a couple of weeks, and nobody would say anything, and he'd come back, and he'd sit in a rocking chair, and they would talk about him in whispered tones, never wanting to say anything about Uncle Ferris's problem in front of the K-I-D-S. Now, I didn't know where Uncle Ferris had been or what he'd done, but he looked like he must have had a good time because he looked like he was awful tired. And I was to find out later that Uncle Ferris was the town drunk. And uh, in a small town in McAllister, Oklahoma, you just didn't talk about it. So as I know alcoholics today, you know, they can be sneaky. Uh, we have a son whose favorite drug is uh, not alcohol. But I heard someone describe once, an alcoholic will steal your money, admit it, and, and tell you it's okay. A drug addict will steal your money, help you look for it, and deny it. Anyway, so I grew up in this family that was like I told you. And uh, my folks were divorced. They were always very civilized to each other, but I never remember them living together. And when I was in high school, my mother and my sister and I moved from uh, Oklahoma to Bakersfield, California. Now, if you've read Steinbeck, you know that's what you do if you're raised in Oklahoma. You go to Bakersfield, California. And here I was in this big city, I thought. And one morning, I was coming out of the music building at uh, my high school. And I saw this crowd gathered over in the corner and I heard this commotion and I looked over there and I saw something that I'd never seen in Oklahoma and that was this tall handsome he had a lot of hair then and he was skinny and he was holding court he was what I described today as thigh slapping fingers snapping fast talking and we call it alcoholic charisma <laughs> and people were gathered around him and they were saying oh that's Keith Carpenter he's back he was going to school over across Bakersfield at, at the junior college, and he would come back on his lunch hour to girl watch, he says. And, uh, you know, I shook my pom-poms or whatever, and I got his attention. And uh, 
We were married and we moved to San Jose because Keith had a scholarship to go to school. And, you know, at that time, I know this now. I only learned this in, since I've been in Al-Anon. I, of course, didn't know it then. But I started at that time to do something that I know that we as Al-Anons or non-alcoholics do. I started forming the pictures in my mind of what our life would be like. And our life was going to be like what I based it on, movies and books. We were going to be, you know, Jane and Wes or whatever his name was and Father Knows Best, and we were going to live in a little house in the Midwest. Now, Keith was born and raised in California and had never any desire to move, but that was my picture. A little house in the Midwest on a tree-covered street very much like this with a white picket fence. And he would be sitting in a big leather chair smoking a pipe. Keith didn't smoke, but that made the picture more complete. And the children would be huddled at his feet, clean, of course, and he'd have a big Irish setter by him and I'd be in the kitchen with my Priscilla curtains on the windows and I would be cooking. He would be chairman of the athletic department. I would be chairman of the faculty wives. And so that picture, I am grateful, did get me through the years that Keith was drinking while we were in school. And uh, that was one thing that you told me when I first came down and I had to break those pictures because those were the pictures for the normal people. Well, my sponsor, Marianne, tells me normal is a gauge on my dishwasher and I shall never have it. She says, life is not Burger King. You don't get it your way. <laughs> but that was the picture I had in my mind. And so no matter what Keith did, no matter how late he stayed out or what fraternity party he went to or if he missed the team bus on back from a game, you know, I thought, well, when he gets out of here, he won't, he won't do those things. He won't go with those guys that tie him to the bar stool and lock the bar doors. He'll come home and we'll have this picture life. I didn't know then, and nor did Keith, that we were living with the disease of alcoholism. As I look back today, I realize that Keith drank alcoholically from the very first time. But God, he was so funny and so cute and so clever when he would drink. He always had the best ideas, and he always had the car, and he always had the booze, and he was so funny. And I didn't know then that Keith was drinking alcoholically. I just thought he drank more than anyone else, and he could hold it. But I know today that he drank alcoholically then. Now, where he crossed the invisible line, I have no idea. He might have crossed the impost back door, the stop and sip, the golden doll, the alibi. He might have crossed in our own living room. I don't know. But somewhere he crossed the line from alcoholic drinking to becoming the alcoholic. But, you know, the disease of alcoholism is like that. It's very slow and very insidious. And we didn't know that we were living in that disease. And, you know, we didn't just wake up one morning and think, oh, this is all wrong. It was a slow process. Day after day, little by little, we slipped into the disease of alcoholism. And I'm here to tell you today that I, as a non-alcoholic, carried the disease of alcoholism in our family more than Keith did. Keith was just a happy-go-lucky drunk. He would go out to the bars and get drunk and come home, you know. And I was the one that was abusive and bizarre and did those things. And... You know, I know today that that's the disease of alcoholism. I used to get in a rage at Keith's drinking, but it wasn't his drinking that I was in the rage at. It was his alcoholic behavior. And I know today that the disease of alcoholism is the things that people do when they drink. It's the lying, the cheating, the infidelities, the, the bad checks, and other broken promises. That is the disease of alcoholism. And I think our children accepted the fact that their father drank. Isn't it strange? Every day I would get up and I'd think, well, he won't drink today. He drank yesterday. And I don't think the kids ever thought that. 
So I know today that I, as the non-alcoholic, carried that disease because we do know it's a family disease, much more than Keith did, much more. I think the kids knew that Keith drank, and they expected him to act the way he acted. But me, they were never, never sure what I was going to be. I, uh, I today know that the actions that I have were strictly his react- my reaction to his drinking. And we know in Al-Anon that's what we learned. We cannot control the thoughts that are come into our head, but we can control the actions we take on them. And that would have never crossed my mind in the drinking years. Any thought that popped into my head that I thought would keep Keith from drinking, I would take it. And that included going to the bars in the middle of the night. And if he wasn't there, I told everybody there they could go home. You know, don't let the trip be a total loss. Disconnecting the wires on the car and, you know, all of those things that we did. And writing the checks and not writing the checks and pouring the booze out and buying the booze and the rages and the crying and the screaming and the leaving and the not leaving and kicking him out and bringing him back and all of those things. Those are what I know today is the disease of alcoholism that I lived with. But, you know, it didn't start out that way. It started out these two young kids going to San Jose State, and when we got out of there, we were going to go to my little house in my picture, and we were going to live this typical, normal American life. Well, that was not to ever happen, because Keith did graduate from San Jose, and he was drafted by the 49ers, and we went up to the Bay Area, and the people were very good to us there. But you know, the same people that were in San Jose must have moved to, to San Francisco, because he would go out with the guys, and he would be locked to the door doors and tied to the bar stool, and he wouldn't come home. And he'd always been out with his best friends, who I didn't even know. And uh, so he was there, and the people were very good. This is an exciting life. But he, uh, he came home to me one day and he told me that we were going to move to Canada. Well, that sounded good to me because I knew then that it would be different up there. I didn't know that the beer was 13% up there. So, you know, and so I know today that we did what we learned. We made our first geographic. We moved from the United States to Canada. And as I stand here today, I tell you, it must have been when we crossed that Canadian border. You've seen them a hundred times, those big Foster Kleiser signs that say, Drink Canada Dry. Keith must have said, what an order. I think I'll go through with it. (laughs) So we were to drink our way across Canada, from Edmonton to Winnipeg to Toronto. Because when you drink like Keith drank, they don't keep you a lot in that profession. They trade you and they sell you, and that's what they did to us. And every time we moved, I always thought it would be different, and it was different because it was beginning to get worse. Just as the disease of alcoholism did, it began to progress. And what was happening to me happens to people who live with the disease of alcoholism. I began to change. I began to lose those illusions of what we were going to be. And those two young people became, you know, a sick man and a screaming, shrewish woman. And uh, those little kids became what kids could become when you live in that kind of atmosphere. They became confused, I'm sure, and all the things that happened. But, you know, we never give up. You know, the, the ABCs of the fifth chapter say no human power can relieve the alcoholic's drinking. Well, if you're like me, you give it your best shot, and that's what I did. I gave it my best shot. And so I did all the things that I thought made this perfect family, because somewhere along the way I thought if we had a perfect family and a perfect home, Keith would come home. And that's all I wanted was for him to come home. For some reason I thought if he was home, he wouldn't drink. Well, part of that was true. You wouldn't want to drink in my home either by then because I could make it very uncomfortable for you. 
But it was just that thing that I wanted to see him. I wanted to watch him. And that's one of the things that we learned in Al-Anon. You know, keep your eyes off the alcoholic. But Keith was not a home drinker. He was a bar drinker. He loved the bright lights and he loved the bars. And But my idea was if I could create this perfect home, he would come home. And that's all I really wanted was for him to come home. So I did all the things that I thought the mother should do. I joined the PTA. I was the Cub Scout leader, Bluebirds leader, all those things. And I did them today, I know, with the wrong motive. But, you know, motives don't count. My motive then was I was going to do them so that the kids would see that I was perfect and I was doing the right thing for them and he wasn't. I didn't know that that, that was not the real reason that I was doing it. I just thought that uh, I should do it and they would see that I was perfect and he wasn't. But I'm glad that I did it today. And then I had the idea that um, if the house was clean, now we had moved from Canada back to the United States. We'd moved back to Bakersfield. Now here was a small town boy made good. And we went back to Bakersfield. And we had a little house in East Bakersfield. Now, it wasn't really like the house I had in the picture, but I knew that I could whip it into shape and he would come home, which was my one aim, the only thing that I thought about. So I uh, decided that I was going to make this perfect home. Now somewhere along the way I must have read or thought that if you had a clean house it was a perfect house. But I know today that sometimes people come to Al-Anon from different atmospheres and different environments and mine was that if I was busy I wasn't guilty of not doing something I should be doing. Some people get up off the couch, open the curtains and uh, come to Al-Anon. I put down the cleaning brush and the thick and span and came to Al-Anon. Now I don't mean that I just dusted and did a little cleaning. I mean I cleaned. I cleaned the baseboards with a toothbrush. I cleaned the word Frigidaire with a Q-tip. I washed the soap. If you came to my house and sat still long enough, I'd dust your wax you or do something to you. Then I, ha- I know today, I know this today, I know that an unkept lawn just depresses me. But then my thought was, somewhere I had read the book. Now, Keith has never read this book. Now, if he behaves himself and, and doesn't do anything too much too wrong, next January we'll be married 48 years. Now, in 48 years, he's never read this book. But the book says it's his job to mow the lawn. <laughs> I've never heard Keith say, oh, I think I'll go mow the lawn and have one beer. And for years, I expected him to say one or both of those things. So I decided that I was going to do his job, and why would I do his job so he would come home and feel guilty, right? Well, after I got my house all spit and polished, I would go out. Now, we lived in Bakersfield, and Bakersfield is in the San Joaquin Valley, and it gets hot. I don't mean it just gets hot. I mean it gets like 110 at 7 in the morning. It never went out at 7 in the morning. I would wait until noon when it was really hot. And I would get my push mower and I would mow that lawn back one way and back the other way and then I would manicure it and then I would rake it and then I would clip it. And all the time that I'm doing that, you know what I'm thinking. Poor me. I'm out here doing his job and he's down at the wool growers having fun. Now, also too, I knew that probably the neighbors were looking out the window and they were probably saying, look at that. Poor little thing. She's out there mowing his lawn and he's down at the wool growers having fun. Now, they can think it and they can say it to each other, but don't say it to me. Don't criticize Keith's drinking to me, because when you do that, it makes me feel like there's something I'm not doing right. And, you know, God knows I wanted to do the right thing just to keep him from drinking. So don't criticize Keith's drinking to me. And doesn't our Al-Anon literature say that we will defend and we will, we will lie and we will cheat for our alcoholics? And that's what I did. 
but I wanted you to feel sorry for him, but I didn't want you to tell me about it. So you get the lawn all done, and the kids would come home, and then I would think, well, he said that he would be home, because that was my always my closing statement when Keith left in the morning, what time will you be home? And for some reason, I'd believe him when he'd say, I'll be home in time for dinner, and dinner was always on the table, and he was never home. But Keith was not uh, a stay-away drunk. He always came home at 2 o'clock in the morning, after the bars closed. But I uh, would get the kids fed their dinner, and then they would go to bed, and then I would take up the ironing board, because, see, I had had to clean house and do his lawn in the daytime. I hadn't had time to iron. Now, I found out today that I'm just one of those odd people. I like to iron. But my theory then was, he will come home tonight and see that I have had to iron at night because I had to mow his lawn in the daytime. Then he will feel bad, right? I just wanted to make him feel guilty. So I would iron away, and if I was real, real lucky, there would be one of those movies on in the night, and they're always on in the night, and you know what they are. Come fill the cup too much too soon, face in the mirror, lost weekend. And I would watch those movies, and I would iron away. And if there was anything in that movie that I thought he should hear or should know about, I would file it away, because you see, I had a running little feel that I would tell him when he got home, and so I always added it, added into it. So I'd iron away and I'd hang the clothes in the doors in the strategic places where he would see them so he would feel worse when he saw that I had to iron in the daytime. And Keith always came home. He'd wheel into the driveway about 2.30 and he'd get out and he would come up on the porch and it was as if my mouth was connected to the doorknob because as soon as the doorknob turned, the mouth would start. Now I'd had all day to think up these very, very profound statements and questions. And the first statement was, where have you been? Well, I knew where he'd been because I'd been at my station all that day at the phone calling the Silver Fox to stop and sift the satin doll, the alibi, to hear them say, no, he says he's not here, for me to say to tell him to come home or I'm going to come down and throw a brick through your window and all those wonderful things that I would say to those poor, unsuspecting bartenders. But Keith would come in, I would ask him where he'd been, and he would tell me, and I would check out my list. Yes, I had called there, and they said he wasn't, so I knew that he was. Then I would make that profound statement, the one that it, it just amazes me that I could come up with. You've been drinking. And Keith was a very honest drunk. He'd say, yeah, I've had a couple, so what? Now, when he said, so what, it was as if a tape went in because it had played the night before. He would waddle over there to his listening chair and sit down. I would stand in that talking position. The one that gives us such superior feelings. And I would tell him, so what, that day, the day before, and if you loved me, and so did your mother, and on and on and on. And everything he'd done wrong that day, and the day before, and anything else that I could throw in. And when I got all through, I would top it off with a thing that I knew that he hated to hear most, and it was the most distasteful thing that I could say, and that was, and you're an alcoholic. And when I said that, he knew I was through. And he would go to bed, go to sleep, or pass out. And I would go to bed, and then I had to handle those feelings, those feelings that alcoholics talk about coming into AA with, the feelings of guilt and remorse, because I had said things to Keith that were not true. I had said things that had no foundation. I had made accusations that they couldn't have possibly been true. But I would lay there, and I would think, now, I wonder if the kids heard me. Now, this was a little house with paper-thin walls. You could have heard me two blocks away with your windows closed. But I would lay there and I would finally convince myself, no, the kids were asleep. And when I could do that, I could go to sleep. 
Then I would get up the next morning and our day always started with those little kids sitting at the table wondering who was going to be mother today because maybe maybe I'd OD'd on Leave It to Beaver, you know, and I'd have on my pearls and I'd be all starched or maybe I'd be screaming at the top of my voice. Today they call it primal therapy. It's just screaming and yelling. And the next day maybe I wouldn't be saying anything and I would be slamming those cupboard doors and there would be silence and those little kids would sit at the table and they would think, you know, don't ask her for the milk, just eat your cereal dry, but don't get her started, don't set her off. You know, and the silence. You know, they say that a home with alcoholism in it has sounds. Sometimes it's the sounds of people hitting people and sometimes the people of crying and sometimes it's that cold, dead silence. And I think that's the most frightening for those little kids because they never knew what was going on. But that's the way they left the house in the morning, and that is the disease of alcoholism. That is the family disease of alcoholism. And I told you what my day was like, and this went on for a few years. And Keith was selling cars, and he'd sell cars a half a day and stay in the bars a half a day, I guess. But he came home to me one day, and he said, you know, we're going to move from here. We're going to move to Los Angeles. Well, I thought, now that's a good idea because we will be away from his family. I knew they were the problem. We'll be away from those people who timed to the bar stool and locked the bar doors. And so we moved to Woodland Hills, California. Now, if you had given me the house in my picture, this was it, because it was on San Feliciano Street, and there were little pepper trees that hung over the street, and it had a white picket fence. The only thing was, by now, the disease of alcoholism had done what it, was, what it does. It had progressed to the point where it was destroying everything that we ever thought that we would be or we would have. And I became that person who now I'm more alone because our two older children had been my sounding board. That is the disease of alcoholism, me sounding off my feelings to those kids who had no control and no power and did not understand what was happening. But they, my two older children had gotten to the age where they didn't want to hear it. You know, they'd say, you know, don't, I don't want to hear it, Mom. If you move before we come home from school, leave a note where we're supposed to go. Because that was always my thing. I was going to leave. And so I became, you know, alone. I, I thought that everybody on that block went to Disneyland every weekend and never had a bill and never had a problem. I thought we were the only ones that lived like that. And uh, so this went on, and Keith continued to drink, and the drinking progressed, and the alcoholism progressed, and the insanity in the family progressed. And I became more and more alone, and I became those kind of people that I had just a little radius that I would go in the grocery store and the post office because for some reason I thought I had to stay by the phone to listen for the phone to ring. Not that he ever called, but you know, there might be a chance. So one day I decided that now I'm not a fast study because I had run away from home many times. I never had any money, any gas or anywhere to go. So I decided that I was going to get a job and I was going to save enough money that I was going to leave. So I looked in the paper and I saw a job with a company that made little parts for IBM. Now, you know, we get what we can handle exactly on the time schedule that we're supposed to have it because by this time I had had what happens to people who live with the disease of alcoholism happen to me. I had lost my self-esteem. I'd lost my self-confidence. And I looked in the paper and I found this job and it was a perfect job for me because you didn't talk to anyone because you were paid by the number of pieces that you cleaned. They were little pieces for computers. And so I took that job and I would still, I would set up the schedule. I would have Keith take me to work because I wanted him to pick me up. I knew that he picked me up, he'd stay home that night. Many, many nights I walked home from that job. 
You know, I was the one that was standing on the corner at 7 o'clock at night, still waiting, never giving up, walking home. And I kept that job, and one day I decided that Keith should quit drinking by going to a hypnotist. So I talked him into going to a hypnotist, and that didn't work. But another time, I talked him into going to the National Council on Alcoholism. And when we were there, this man gave, this lady told me all about Al-Anon. Now, don't ask me what she said because I was not interested. I wanted to be downstairs with him to tell him about how his drinking was because I knew that Keith probably wouldn't tell him. And uh, she told me about Al-Anon, and she gave me a number to an Al-Anon lady, but I don't know what I did with it. But I uh, went downstairs when the man was through talking to Keith, and he said to me then, he said, I don't think he's ready, Sally, but you go to Al-Anon. And, you know, I left that building, and we went home, and I never once gave Al-Anon a thought. But for the next nine months, every morning, I would think, I wonder if he'll call AA today. I wonder what he'll do today. If he would just call AA, if he would just quit drinking. Because, you see, I didn't know anything about sobriety or abstinence. I just wanted him to quit drinking. I didn't understand what the disease of alcoholism was all about. So the next nine months, of course, Keith did not call AA and he did not quit drinking and the disease progressed and my disease progressed. And uh, I was very uh, faithful about waiting up for him to tell him where he'd been and what he'd done wrong, but something happened. You know, it's, we call them spiritual awakenings, I think, and I don't think that they zoom down over us in one fell swoop and we feel it. I think that it's something that we think about having happened. And uh, at one time, I must have thought, I just don't care anymore. And what it was is I could not bear to see what was happening to Keith. And our Al-Anon literature talks about the fact that we cannot bear to see the person we love killing themselves. And one night I was standing at the window and Keith by now could not work for anyone else and he had gone into his own business, pool service cleaning. And one night I was standing at the window waiting for him to come home. For some reason I thought I needed to watch him come in. And I looked out the window and the pickup pulled into the driveway and he literally fell out of the truck. And what I saw there was something that I had never seen because here was this young man that I married some 18 years before that. Tall and light and handsome then. But I looked at him that night and he was fat and he was bloated. And he had that look, that look on his face and that vacant look in his eyes, that look of despair that alcoholics get at the end of their drinking. And his clothes had holes in them from the chlorine and his shoes were tennis shoes that were all worn out. And he just looked that way that alcoholics look. And I had a feeling come over me that I didn't know what it was because I didn't wait for him at the door and yell and scream at him. I just turned and went to bed. And when I came to Al-Anon, you told me what that feeling was. That feeling was called compassion. At one moment, I looked at him and I had a feeling of compassion when I saw him walk in that door. And I thought, you know, what's going to happen? What happened to that young man? What happened to that young girl? And what happened to those dreams that we had? And I went to sleep. And the next day, I went to work to my job. And Keith called me. And he said, you know what I've done? I've called AA. Well, probably that morning or certainly the night before I had laid in bed and I thought, God, if you will let him quit drinking, I will do anything. Not go to Al-Anon, of course, but anything. Just let him quit drinking. Let him call AA. But when he called me, you know, they tell us, you know, if we forget where we came from, and the minute he said he called AA, I thought, AA, well, he's not that bad. 
Does he think that I'm going to go to those meetings? Because I knew what AA was. I'd seen him in those movies. It's older men in dark rooms with yellow light bulbs with fly specks on them. And I didn't want to go there, and I didn't think that he belonged there, but I thought, well, I'll go home. So I just got up from my job, and I went home, and there was a man there making a 12-step call on him. And the man told him, didn't tell him anything that I thought he should tell him. He didn't tell him he had to quit drinking, mow the lawn, or clean out the garage, or anything else. He just told him his story, and this man was a violent drunk. He used to hit people. Well, Keith never hit me. I'd hit me a hundred times if I'd have been Keith. But Keith never laid a finger on me, and if he had of, you'd have a different Alan on speaker today. But anyway, this man told him his story, which we do in our 12-step calls. And rather than let this man go out and do anything uh, more harm to AA, and on top of that, he was a bartender. Now, any self-respecting Al-Anon doesn't want a bartender in her house. Of course, he was five years sober. I didn't hear that. But rather than let him go out and do any more damage to AA, I whipped out my scrapbook because over the years I had made this scrapbook about drinking and alcoholism. And I had everything in there that I could ever copy down, cut out, or send away for. I even had a letter from the Health and Welfare Department about a pill they were going to make for the alcoholic to drink socially. And I pointed all this out to him, and I even had the list of the ethnic backgrounds, and Swedes and Indians cannot drink, and Keith is Swedish, and he didn't even tell him that. He didn't tell him any of this. But Bob turned to me, and he put his arm around me, and he did things, the same thing that alcoholics have continued to do for these last 29 years. He said, it's going to be okay, Sally, and we love you. And he said, I'll be back tonight and take Keith to a meeting. And he said, and I'll have a lady call you tonight about Al-Anon. Well, he took Keith to a meeting that night, and she called, and she was one pushy broad, I want to tell you. <laughs> she thought that I was going to jump up right then and go to Al-Anon that night. Well, I told her that I couldn't possibly go that night. I had something very important to do. Now, mind you, I hadn't done anything unimportant in months, but I told her I probably could go maybe the next night. I figured the next night was Friday. I'd go to a meeting. Keith would probably go to another meeting. Saturday, he'd clean out the garage. Sunday, we'd go on a picnic. Monday, we'd be in a higher income bracket. And then we would be on our way to success. <laughs> so the next night, this lady came and picked me up. Now, I did something that, that night that I hadn't done in a long time. You know, we began to be the victim if we feel the victim and i felt the victim so i was the, became the victim without knowing and you know what we do when we feel the victim we begin to act like the victim and that's we kind of slouch and we kind of shuffle and we kind of dress like the victim we always wear our basic pitifuls they're just a little bit too big for us somebody gave them to us and you never buy yourself anything if you're real real lucky you have a friend maybe who's an avon lady and she'll give you those little samples of lipstick you can dig around there and put lipstick on. Don't ever buy yourself. Buy lots for the family, but don't ever buy yourself anything. Just be the victim. Act the victim. Look the victim. But this night I thought, well, my husband is sober a day in a row. I'll go to this meeting. They'll ask me how I got into AA and how wonderful sobriety is, and so I need to look good. So I got all dressed up, and I went to my first Al-Anon meeting on July 21st, 1967. And it was in the hot basement of a church in Canoga Park. And I uh, walked into that room, and I'm here to tell you that I've heard members of Alcoholics Anonymous say it, and I've heard members of Al-Anon say it. I walked through those doors, and I saw you people in the looks in your eyes, and I found everything that I was looking for. 
And that happened to me on July 21st, 1967. That night, I found everything that I was looking for. And if you're in AA and you go to AA looking for it, and you're in Al-Anon, you go to Al-Anon looking for it, because I was looking for all the things that made me different and made me not belong, and I found them. I found people who were still living with people who were drinking. Why, my husband was at his second meeting. I found people whose children were misbehaving. I found people who weren't dressed up. I didn't find anybody with three kids who'd been married 18 years, exactly. And I didn't find what I was looking for in them. And I made a decision that night, not knowing to them, not telling them that I would never set foot in another Al-Anon meeting. This was in the 60s, and uh, hairspray and backcombing were in. And it seemed to me that all these old broads uh, would hit me with their hair if I didn't behave. So I uh, sat through the hour and a half meeting, as I'd been taught to do, to stay till the end, and I uh, started to leave the meeting and assured them that I thought the meeting was wonderful and that I would return, never with any intentions of ever going back. But I started out the door and I looked down on the table and then it hit me why they talked in those little short phrases, let go and let God, and keep coming back and first things first. And they patted me a lot and said, it's going to be okay, honey. And I looked down, and there on the literature table, right in plain sight, now I was not allowed to read comic books as a child, and there it was, Jane's husband drinks too much. Well, you know, we get what we need exactly when we can handle it, because if the feeling had come over me that night that I had two years into Al-Anon when I saw that comic book, I would have never, ever come back to Al-Anon. Because when I was two years in Al-Anon, I was doing what Al-Anon had taught me to do. I put my hand out to a newcomer, and I was gathering up literature, and I looked at that book, and at two years, I realized I could have posed for that picture. Because there's Jane at the window, looking out the Venetian blinds, baby in her arms, a child on each side. And I know what she's saying to those kids. Don't bother me. Go away. I'm busy. And that's what I used to say to my children. And at two years, a feeling of guilt came over me. And I would not have been able to handle that feeling any time before that because I knew then that I had deprived my children of the thing that only I could give them, and that was a mother's love and a mother's time. But I was busy. I was watching him. I have a friend in Texas who says, these aren't wrinkles on her forehead, they're, they're lines from the Venetian blinds. But I left that meeting, and I thought, well, I won't ever come back here, and maybe Keith will have to go to another meeting or two, but uh, as soon as we get this all in order, well, everything is going to be wonderful. And I uh, decided that uh, I would go to AA meetings with him. Number one, I didn't understand about alcoholism. I didn't understand anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I certainly didn't know anything about the most important thing about the program. I did not understand this thing we call fellowship. And I thought, if the meeting doesn't start till 8.30, why does he go at 6? And if it's over at 10, why does he not get home till 12? I didn't know that the fellowship before and after the meeting were as much or as more important than the meeting itself. So I decided that I would go with him. Literally, I was riding shotgun to see that that's where he went. And so I would go to these meetings, and they just irritated me. Because as soon as they found out I wasn't an alcoholic, they never even talked to me. They never asked me how I felt. They never even asked me to leave the silent meditation. They never did anything. They would just ignore me, and they would pat Keith on the back and say, Well, Keith, how long has it been? He'd say, Oh, it's been two weeks. They'd say, Wonderful, wonderful. And I thought, Well, what's so wonderful about it? I could have done that with my eyes closed. I'd been asking for 18 years not to drink. And they asked him one time, and he makes a big deal of it. 
And I looked around the room, and there were a lot of attractive women in that room. There are a lot of beautiful women in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it seemed to me that Keith must be going to those what they call women's stags. Because it seemed to me, it seemed to me that they were calling a lot. And it seemed to me that they were teaching him to say things just to irritate me. Things like, well, I'm doing the best I can do, or I'm sober, aren't I? Or the things that I hated most. The thing that just made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Well, Clancy says. (laughs) And I just, you know, I would not have been too unhappy if a train hadn't run over Clancy in 1967. So I decided I was not going to go to any more of those meetings, and he'd been going now for like a week and a half, and he certainly didn't. I mean, how dumb is he? He's a college graduate. Can he get those little simple phrases down quicker than that? I got them down in one night. And so I decided that he didn't really need to go to those meetings. What he needed to do was he needed to stay home. And now I thought... I began to do what I have seen people do in Al-Anon. And when I was new and I would hear people say, well, she won't be happy till he drinks, I thought, what a terrible thing to say. But I'll tell you, that was the feeling that I had without knowing it. Because you see, when Keith drank, I knew what was going to happen. He would drink, I would yell and scream, he'd feel guilty, and he'd behave a couple of days. So now I'm living with somebody I don't know because Keith was a daily drinker. I don't mean that he fell down on the floor drunk every day, but I mean he consumed alcohol in some form every day and got drunk periodically. So I did not know how to handle someone who was living with me who did not drink, because here I was living with a total stranger. He didn't drink, and he was become very spiritual, and we were all now supposed to go on a diet and uh, exercise every day and go on a budget and all these things that I'd been wanting to do for years. So I decided that he needed to stay home, and I began to resent Alcoholics Anonymous, and I began to resent sobriety, because you see, I was living in an unfamiliar surrounding. And my really my thought was, hey, I got 18 years invested in this turkey. You know, you clean them up and stand them up, and they don't look too bad. And if he thought that I was going to waltz out, and he was, because I'd seen it happen. I'd been to I'd been to three or four AA meetings, and I'd seen this happen. This was in the 60s, remember? The men would wear those Kiana shirts. And they used to unbutton them down here and fluff up the hair on their chest. I think it was to cover up the bypass scars. But And they'd buy those gold chains and get one of those curly hairdos and run away with a newcomer. I'd seen it happen. And I thought, that's not going to happen to him, me. So I decided that I would compete with the ladies of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went down and I had my hair frosted. Now, I didn't know that you had to keep it up. I just thought you had it frosted. And Keith had all these friends that would call and they would come by and they'd all get in the car and they'd go off laughing and I'd be standing at the door, you know, thinking, well, one more time he's found something that makes him happy and I can't be a part of it. I could have been, but you see, I didn't want to be. I thought that I needed to direct his own sobriety program. So I'm uh, home one Saturday morning. You see, I worked and I had to stay home on Saturdays. And he came and he told me, that he was going to go to Tehachapi, which is the men's prison, for a, an anniversary thing. And somebody was going to pick him up. And somebody was always coming to pick Keith up. He had a lot of friends now, and they always went places together. And I had to stay home that day and clean house because I worked, you see. And uh, so he was right. She came right up in our driveway in her big, long black car. And I was driving a pickup at the time. And uh, remember the old Loretta Young shows? where Loretta used to just come through the door in some fantastic Valentino gown. 
Well, that's the way Wanda did. Now, Wanda really could have looked like Godzilla. I don't know. But to me that day, my self-esteem was so low that she looked like maybe a cross between Farrah Fawcett and Raquel Welch. And she came right into our living room, and she went over and she said, Oh, Keith, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They kiss a lot in AA. Now, I hadn't had time to do much to myself that morning, so I'm standing in the kitchen with this unkept frosted hair in my It's All Your Fault robe. Did you have one of those? Those are those little chenille numbers that maybe have little spare spots on them where you pick the chenille off while you're standing at the window nervously. Little cigarette burns, little chocolate, little chlorine holes, little Kleenex coming out of the pocket. They're usually tied with something that never belonged to that garment. And I'm standing there in my robe with my unkept hair and those wonderful rubber go-aheads that had just come out. And she says, Oh, Keith, And she says, Oh, now what was her name? And I thought, What was her name? You're going to know my name, bitch. So I am so grateful that today that I hit my bottom in my kitchen that morning before Keith hit hers. Because you know we get what we need exactly when we're supposed to have it. And the next day Keith got a call for a 12-step call and the man said, does your wife go to Al-Anon? And I said, of course I go to Al-Anon. I've been to one meeting. But you know, that proved to me that day and today that you cannot do anything wrong because I just parroted everything that I'd heard in that meeting. And I told Valerie everything that they had told me in my first meeting. And it worked because Valerie still goes to Al-Anon today. And I made a decision that Valerie needed to go to Al-Anon because I needed someone to go with me. And I took her to my Thursday night open discussion Tarzana meeting. And that became my home meeting for the next 17 years. And my sponsor told me I would be at that meeting short of death, and it better be mine. And that is what Al-Anon was. So I went with a whole different attitude. And the attitude I went with, I was looking for the feelings and not the situations. And I found in that meeting the thing that's most important to us as our sponsors. Now, I didn't really like Mary Fran. She was a terrible housekeeper. And she was not particularly kind to me. But when Mary Fran would share in those meetings, something told me that she believed what she was saying. And so I would do the things that she told me to do. And she talked about the first step. And she said, when you went to your first meeting, you worked the first half of the first step. She said, because you had known about Al-Anon nine months and you didn't go. So when you went, you really had admitted you were powerless. And I felt so good because I had worked the first half of the first step. And believe me, the second step I had no problem with, no problem at all. But she talked about the third step. Now, I'd been raised in the Midwest, and I had a good upbringing in the church, and uh, I went to Sunday school and MYF and church camp, and I had no quarrel with a higher power. But I have learned today that my higher power is just really very courteous. He's not going to come in unless I invite him. So I, uh, about that time, Keith was given a copy of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous the way they were originally written. And originally, the seventh step says, humbly on our knees. So I put the on our knees back in, and I made a commitment to myself some 28 years ago that I would not go to bed without having been on my knees. And the prayer I said that night, I said last night, and I'll say tonight if I don't forget, and that's that I'm grateful for everything that he's given me, and I'm grateful for everything that he's left me. 
but I'm more grateful for the things that he's taken away because he's taken away those feelings that I used to have that sense of impending doom that dark gloomy feeling that feeling that it's bad today and it's bad yesterday and it'll probably be bad tomorrow and he's replaced it with things like this conference and phone lists and sponsors and friends all over the world and that's what Al-Anon is to me so I found this sponsor and I began to do the things that she began to tell me to do and I knew that she would never ask me to do anything that she hadn't done and so I watched her and I began to do those things and I began to become comfortable in Al-Anon and uh, you know I, I love the program of Al-Anon I gotta tell you I, I'm not one of these people that believe that you can love everybody in the program if you love everybody in the program you're not going to enough meetings So Keith and I started out on this journey now. We're active in our Al-Anon program and our AA program. And I got to tell you a little bit about my kids because these three beautiful children grew up. And our daughter was the kind, Kim, a teacher told me once, she said, having Kimberly in my classroom is like having a ray of sunshine. Now, wouldn't any mother love to hear that? And I did. And it was truly, and it's true today. Kim could walk in that door and it would be like having a ray of sunshine walk into this room because Kim was one of those perfect daughters, the perfect child. And uh, she came to Keith and I one day and she had told us in a certain way that she was going to choose a life that was certainly unacceptable to us and she was going to move in with Joe. Well, Joe was not someone you'd bring home to daddy, believe me. And we had no idea that what was happening in her life. And so for the next few weeks, she lived with Joe, and then one morning at 5.30, we get that phone call, that phone call that when your children are doing those things and living that kind of life, you know that's going to happen. And that phone call came at 5.30, and by 5.45, Keith and I were probably within 30 miles away. We were at St. John's Hospital, and we walked into the emergency, and they handed us our daughter's clothes in a, in a plastic bag. And she laid in the intensive care for some three weeks, and when she came out of intensive care, she had been scarred so badly in this car accident that she would never be able to pursue the career that she was in, and that was with TV and modeling. But, you know, a strange thing happened. She didn't accept it like we thought she would. She just laughed it off. Because, you see, she was covering up her feelings with chemicals, and for the next 17 years, she did the things that lady alcoholics do, and the things that happened to lady alcoholics happened to Kim. And one day she came to us and she said that she had met a man at ABC TV and they were going to get married and they were going to move to Pony, Montana. Now Kim had been in and out of the program in Los Angeles many times in that 17 years. And I thought, well, that's not what she needs to do. She needs to stay here and go to the Pacific Group with her father and do the things that he did. But she went to Pony, Montana. And believe me, you can get in as much trouble in a town of 80 people as you can in Hollywood because she managed to do it. But on May 24th, 19, 10 years ago, I'm not very good at math, she called us and she told us that she had joined AA. Now, she joined AA in Pony where there's only 80 people. You see, she was the only member. So she did what people do who are creative, I guess. She created her own meeting on Tuesday night in the little schoolhouse there. And people came for 30 and 40 miles because there's not a lot of meetings. And some nights on the cold nights with six feet of snow, she'd have 30 and 40 people at that meeting. And so today, Kim was sober and clean 10 years, last May 24th, and we are grateful for that. So if my plan had been worked, it would not have worked. And our second son, uh, Keith, is um, 
Keith is normal, I guess. He's one of those guys that uses his seat belts and signs his shoes and pays his bills and is honest and all those things. And uh, he is he is a delight to us. But he uh, got out of high school and he said that he wanted to go up to Washington State and fish. And so he got on a fishing boat and he was fishing from uh, Washington up to Alaska. And he called us and he told us that he wanted to come home to get married with a girl that he had met in Alaska. Now here was the kid that wouldn't have brought his friends home for cookies and milk after school. And he wanted to come home and share this beautiful day with his parents in our yard. And of course we were thrilled and he came down and this was in the 60s too and uh, they were living close to the earth you know no well it looked like a convention of granola and bergenstocks really to tell you the truth <laughs> and uh, and they brought their friends the princess and the frog to play the music the frog played the guitar and the princess sang and uh, Annie came out of the house out back by the pool in a little dress that looked, it looked a lot like a gunny sack to me. But you know, my Al-Anon kicked in and I thought, isn't that nice? Her dress matches his tennis shoes. And they shared that day with us and now, you know, they live with the establishment and my son runs a factory that Keith and he own and they, he's doing well and, and, you know, things change with time. And our youngest son, our youngest son, you know, alcoholics and other drug addicted people, they can't, they can give you so much joy but they can give you so much pain at the same time. And last June, uh, Keith's birthday is June 9th, his belly button birthday is June 9th, and our son and his wife came down for the week. And we had the most wonderful week. It was fun-filled, and we laughed, and we did the things that we liked to do, and it was just wonderful. And they left on Sunday, and Monday we found out our ATM card went with them. And uh, so he exercised his second addiction, which is the Greenfield fever up in Reno or up in Nevada somewhere. And we've heard from him a couple of times since then, but, you know, not since then. But I go to, night, I go to bed every night and I pray for his physical safety because I know if physically he can be well, that emotionally and spiritually he'll be okay. And that's the, that's the complexity of this program. You know, intellectually I know that the program of Al-Anon is the same for him as it was for Keith, but emotionally I just can't accept that. I try, but it's very difficult. Emotionally, something tells me that it's my child and I'm more responsible. I never laid in bed and prayed for my daughter or my son to die, and I used to do that for Keith. So why is that? Because emotionally, this program is different for me when it comes to my children. But I know that I must work it the same as I did for Keith. So that's the story of our three children. And life goes on, and you know, if, uh, if he called today to come home, our door is open. I've never closed our door to our children, and I'm grateful for that because it seems that, you know, they, they do return and things happen that are supposed to happen, and this is his way. So if you have someone out there who's suffering and still doing their thing, you know, it will happen in God's time and not your time. And I don't know what, what God's plan is for Kyle, but whatever it is, I'm sure that it's, it's going to be the best for him. In 19... Uh, Keith and I have been to five internationals, and our first one was in Denver, and our second one was in New Orleans. And if you were in New Orleans, in the Sheraton Hotel, I think it was, they had given Keith a room to do the first marathon that was ever going to be held at the international. At an international. 
and he had people coming from all over the world to lead those meetings. And on Thursday night, they, all these people came and volunteered, and they blew up balloons, and they put them around. And they had flags all around the room from every country that was represented to that international. And on Sunday morning, they took the candle that they had lit on Thursday night, the start of that marathon meeting, over to the Superdome. And I sat in that Superdome with Keith's sponsor and my sponsor and our friends in Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thought, you know, how did I get here? How did I get from Mesa Drive in Bakersfield to the Superdome? And then I realized how I was there. Because the theme of that, pro that particular convention was the joy of living. And up on the stage, Keith stood and he spoke and he talked about the marathon and he talked about Pete, who was one day sober, who blew out the candle in front of those 40,000 people. And I looked and behind him was this big, big banner and it said, the joy of living. And I thought, how did I get here from Bakersfield? And then I realized the joy of living. I've had more than my share, and I'm so grateful to you and the program of Al-Anon for that. Thank you. And I talked at a conference somewhere, and the theme of that conference is Rule 62. Do you know what Rule 62 is? Don't take yourself so seriously. Well, maybe you'll identify with this. This is a little thing that uh, it's for the Al-Anon. To being the Al-Anon, I get to do the lead, right? <coughs> Sweet Al-Anon, my Al-Anon, my Al-Anon, I call the house. I Keep them within the walls of this room and the confines of your mind. A few special words to those of you who haven't been with us long. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If you try to keep an open mind, you will find help. You will come to realize that there is no situation too difficult to be bettered and no unhappiness too great to be lessened. We aren't perfect. We welcome 
and the welcome we give you may not show the warmth we have in our hearts for you. After a while, you discover that though you may not like all of us, you'll love us in a very special way, the same way we already love you. Talk to each other, reason things out with someone else, but let there be no gossip or criticism of one another. Instead, let the understanding, love, and peace of the program grow in you one day at a time. I'd like to thank Ted and Lynn for helping me open and close the meeting, and I'd like to thank Sally for her lead. I'd like to close with the Lord's Prayer. 